0: Limited
1: Mileage Hello, hello again
2: Hey everybody, my name is Greg Hoy This is Limited Mileage, my podcast Welcome This is part two of a conversation I had with Jack Rabbit. You should listen to part one if you haven't, or don't you know no rules it's funny to think that this conversation happened exactly a month ago as i'm sitting still in quarantine along with most of most of the, of the world i think it's hard to really know what's going on isn't it how are you how are you surviving how is your struggle trust your struggle um this second piece of my interview with jack rabbit Publisher of Big Takeover Magazine a Bon Vivant uh, New York punk originator Amateur Historian as he calls himself This second part Is just The Grateful Eight And it's an hour and a half Of Jack uh, Who is Just so thoughtful in all his answers And so he's an encyclopedia Of knowledge Answering A uh, the eight questions we end every podcast with. I want to apologize to Jack because we had some internet problems and uh, we had to space out our three hours over a few different calls that day back in April. But um, what a great dude. Thank you again, Jack. And I hope you enjoy the second piece. Um, How am I doing? Well, people are dying. Uh, People always have been dying. Uh, As Jerry Seinfeld says, babies are here to replace us. Um, That's never been more true. I think that we're discovering a lot about our institutions right now, what's important, what's not. There's a lot of good that's going to come out of this quarantine time. I think there's a lot of anxiety. A lot of people are really struggling, and that's understandable. The distractions... Uh, are smaller now, less. We have less distractions, which means more time to focus. And I encourage everyone, if you can, take the time to get to know yourself. Uh, even if you don't like what you find out, that doesn't mean you can't change it. Um, as uh, I think it's Ad Rock or Adam Horovitz, one of the Beastie Boys. Maybe it's Adam. No, Ad Rock. I'm sorry, I'm a bad 90s guy He says you can live many lives In your one life as you In the Beastie Boys book Which came out last year And Spike Jones did a documentary Based around their tour for the book Which is fantastic uh, Highly recommend it What am I dealing with today? Uh, death, there's some death going on um, Not to bring you down Don't bring me down Mark Maron's girlfriend Lynn Sheldon suddenly passed away this weekend and I think all of us that listen to his podcast um, feel like we know that guy. It's like a one-way friendship. So I personally was very I was touched and, and hurt and I feel his pain and he put out a podcast just this morning talking about her her passing. It's very emotional We watched Sword of Trust, which is a movie she, I think, wrote for him that he stars in this weekend. And you kind of see this, you can feel their relationship within it. Uh, Maybe I'm adding that in romantically, who knows. But, you know, you got to hug your friends. And, uh, you know, I hope the law doesn't come after me. I've been hugging people uh, for the past few weeks, telling them it's going to be all right. We're going to figure this out um through the pain and the struggle and hopefully we'll get some great art we'll get some great ideas we'll figure out how we're gonna save our entire species from extinction um and hopefully we'll live in a better world you know leave things better than you found them it's a camping maxim it's something i've always held in the back of my mind staying at people's places on tour Friends, in their guest rooms, on their couches, how can I clean up maybe even a little better than before I got here? And I think that's a really good mantra. How do we make it better uh, than we found it? Maybe we should apply that to ourselves during this time. How do we make ourselves a little better than we found ourselves before this crisis of humanity? It's a good question. Without further ado, here's part two of my conversation with Jack Rabbit. Please enjoy. Well, I'll tell you what I'd love to do, Jack, Um, since we're having some technical difficulties. We end every episode with what's called the Grateful Eight. And it's basically eight questions, kind of like inside the actor's studio. And I know that I want to get to them because you're probably gonna have great answers for them that might take a little longer, um, which is part of why I love talking to you. Uh, are you Thank ready you. for the Grateful Eight? You're not so bad yourself. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, but- you know, it's it was I, I'm not going to lie to you. I was, I was, I had a lot of, I feel like I'm, I've been interviewing people for many years for uh, under many different guises, but talking to you was very special for me because I feel like you're one of those people that every time I read interviews that you've done with people, even if I don't necessarily know or care about the subject i get so much out of them based on how those interviews go so i had a lot of like i said to my wife and like this is like i don't know it's like playing drums with with buddy rich or something it's just gonna be <laughs> it's a thing
1: i know what you mean when i was 21 i played the drums with rats scabies of the den playing guitar and i well, <laughs> what am i doing here playing his drums it was just sound check it was tim summer was the only person watching us Right, but, I, but it was well,
2: fun. Uh, <laughs> my drummer, my drummer, did a, a like a, a thing out in uh, Pacifica out here. It was a benefit show, and his band was playing. And Jello jumped on up on stage a couple of years ago. And Jello Perfect. was yelling out, you know, Dead Kennedy songs. Uh-huh. And my drummer said he felt like he had let down his dad. <laughs> oh, it's, too He's bad. Like, it I, wasn't knew, me. I don't. I don't, I well, knew all of those songs. <laughs> there you go. I, I was going to say you probably would have nailed it.
1: Yeah, I'd be yelling out for the B-sides. I want to play band with the dogs. <laughs> what a great people, song. The
2: rest of the band would be looking at you being like, stop that. Yeah. All right. Stealing people's question, mail. Question one. One,
1: two, three, four.
2: <laughs> <laughs> go. Go. I got this. <laughs> All right. Question one. Here we go. What is the greatest concert you've ever seen?
1: Oh, Lordy. <laughs> there are so many.
2: Greatest I concert
1: know. I ever saw. Hmm. Wow. How do you compare? You know, I think the, one even of those the Paul- first
2: one that pops into your head. Maybe
1: that first Paul McCartney show when he got this new band in the early aughts, just because I'd never heard him do yeah. so many Beatles songs. And I never was interested in his other concerts because I never liked the bands he was playing with. The band he's had the last 15 years, they're just knockouts and they do great Incredible. versions of a lot of his songs. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, certainly, James Brown. Um, those guys were just phenomenal. (laughs) Literally, the literal, the literal version of the word phenomenal. They were phenomenons. Jerry Lee Lewis at freaking Lone Star Cafe in 1981. I mean, just my hair was on fire. Wow! Because he was getting egged on. When when Jerry Lee gets egged on, he doubles his his intensity. If you watch that video of him in London in 64, the second half of that show, when the crowd just starts surrounding him and they're on top of his piano and just about hitting him as he's playing, he just turns the corner, just like, like turning on the hot water and your cold shower turns, you know, scalding. Yeah. just It was like that. It was just like that 64 London thing or the 64 Live at the Star Club live album. It just went bananas. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, I'm in the right place. There's no place I want to be at than this. The Bad Brains, uh, when they opened for Dead Kennedys at Bonds in 81, just blew them off the stage. And Jello came out and just said so, which I thought was really admirable of him. He said, the Bad Brains were so good, yeah. we're not going to do any of our first album. We're just going to play our new songs you haven't heard yet because we're too ba- we're wow. too embarrassed. And the, they were an absolute phenomenon as well, the 60, 70 times I saw them. From '79 to '82, just the greatest live band you'd ever seen. Um, hmm. The Zombies, the original I mean, Zombies, you a bunch. yeah, the original <laughs> Zombies with um, four out of five members doing all of all of us. You know, I, I I've seen that three times in the last five years, and each time has taken my breath away. Even as many years have yeah. going to concerts, Arthur Lee backed by um, Baby Lemonade with the full orchestra. Uh, finally, the first time I ever saw Arthur Lee at the full extent of his powers, ex- uh, aside from the mediocre times I'd seen him in the '80s and '90s, to finally hear what love really should have sounded like—breathtaking. Yeah, Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers saw that about fifteen times, in seven, 79 to eighty, just just unbelievably good. Especially when they'd open with Pipeline, just they hadn't even oh, sung yet, and it was just, oh my god. Um, <laughs> I mean, these people were off the charts, just that good. Yeah. A lot of other things were just one guy shows that were really personal, that really moved me, you know, in many ways. You know, it's hard to beat something like that sometimes just a guy and his guitar. Or, or like I said, yeah. Pete, Pete Townsend singing Young Man's Blues and I put a spell on you by himself on a piano. It was much like that thing I was talking about with Neil Young at his piano a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. You know, only I actually was there in the first row, watching that, going like, "This is great! This is just yeah. incredible!" This these songs meant a lot to him before the Who formed. It's quite clear to me, and he's he's giving them his own versions instead of doing straight covers. And it's really it's really extraordinary. Uh, I'm trying to think who else? Comsat Angels at the Ritz in 1982. Probably best post punk group I ever saw. The sound opening for Romeo Void in 84 at the Ritz. The Chameleons.
2: Oh, wow. Uh, I
1: saw four out of the five Chameleons US dates in 84. The one the one I missed is because I was earning money DJing a Husker Du gig at the Ritz to pay for the out-of-town <laughs> trips to Boston and DC on that tour. <laughs> so I missed Philadelphia. <laughs> Echo and the Bunnyman were, were just gobsmacking as well in the early 80s when they had Pete Defridas on drums right in the front of the stage. All four of them right in the front of the stage and no no drum riser in the oh, back. Man. Um hm.
2: I mean, I, I think you could go on and on. Yeah, but
1: those those are the <laughs> ones you know, the ones that come to mind the first would be those. I saw Fats Domino a dozen times, and he always was really, really great because he always had a top-notch band. And he never had this attitude yeah. like, I can't play this song because i played it a million times. If you guys want to hear Blueberry Hill and Ain't That a Shame, I'm going to you know, give it my all, which I thought was exactly the right attitude for a guy 35 years after he recorded them. And it inspired me. Yeah, My wife and I saw a guy in his 90s called Doc Cheatham who'd been you know, playing with Louis armstrong back in the day and he was so fragile he couldn't move off of his little stool when the band would take its 15 mm. minute breaks like they do at jazz shows so he'd just sit there and you walk up and talk to him and he'd tell us stories about you know playing the, the jazz shows in the 40s and the 30s and just playing a remarkable trumpet and singing in his 90s yeah right up till he died there's just no shortage of things I mean, that have made me really glad I picked that venue, that day to see that group. Yeah, and a million punk rock bands were just unbelievable. Yeah. The the original DOA with Chuck Biscuits and Randy Rampage was like the North American Clash, and the first four or five times I saw the Clash, uh, from '79 to '80, you know, um, right, especially before London Calling came out because that was their best set list in my opinion the first couple albums and a few songs from the London Calling about to come out just uh mind-boggling and the Iggy Pop that 79 tour with those guys yeah at the show place in Dover and at the Palladium with the Cramps and uh my father's place out in Long Island that was the name of that club just to have seen that three times I consider myself very very fortunate uh most 17 yeah. year olds in my school were going to crazy over dire straits or, or something like that at the time, you know, I was like, okay, well, yeah, whatever. Uh, you should come with me to the right. show place. This guy, Gee pop is playing. You wouldn't believe it. You, he'll be in a jockstrap <laughs> by the second song and it won't even matter. <laughs> you should have seen the look on my friend, Janet Whitehouse's face, two songs into that. I'm like, don't look Janet. <laughs> she she oh, says, man. I'm looking, I'm looking. <laughs> We were kidding her because she was, you know, hope, one of my friends' girlfriends at the time. <laughs> oh I hope my! We get
2: there again after all of this. I hope we get that back somehow. Well, we will.
1: You know, this is the thing: is I'm still going to live gigs, and I'm still. I just mentioned a couple from the last few years. You know, uh, Graham yep. Nash recently did his first two albums solo because his new wife goaded into to, and I took my son, and then I brought Jim backstage to meet him because Graham Nash is his favorite singer. And Graham, you know, shook his hand and said that he remembered wow. Jim doing a Holly song of his that he wrote fifty-two years ago, fifty-three years ago. Uh, when Jim was three, he memorized um, uh, "Dear Eloise," one of my favorite Holly's songs, and he hadn't even wow. learned how to read yet. So he knew he wasn't reading off the lyric sheet, <laughs> and he sang that wow. entire song for me, and I recorded it and showed it to Graham Nash when I interviewed him for my Holly's interview. And so when he met uh, Jim at age uh, eleven, he said, "I remembered your video. That was really nice of you to know my song. I wrote that fifty years wow. ago." But what again? An extraordinary performance, full band backing of the first two Graham Nash albums, which I'd never seen him do any of those songs, other than about two or three of them. And this happened yeah. last year. Not you know, dim you know, rose colored memories of seeing James Brown at age twenty. This is something that happened last right. year, and it was just again, I just felt very fortunate to be at the town hall that night. And this is what's going to happen going forward, Greg. You're going to be at a show in a couple years' time when all this goes by, and you're going to be like, wow, I wish everybody I knew was here with me. This is really amazing.
2: I can't wait. It'll come back. Question two. Question two. And this is also, I hope this comes back. (laughs) What is the greatest meal you've ever eaten? Mm.
1: Greatest meal I ever ate. That's a tough one. Um, Anything ever cooked by my wife or my
2: girlfriends.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've always been amazed that someone cooked me a meal. Is there anything
2: in particular? Is there something she makes that really stands out? Uh,
1: Yesterday, she made me silver dollar pancakes without being asked because she knows that's how I like them. We don't have pancakes Pancakes around here a lot. I I think pancakes made with love are the best. Indian food in London would probably be the answer if you're asking me about something that isn't personally made. Got it. Uh, And once I had it in Portsmouth when I went down to see The Sect and uh, Snuff, and they both got blown off the stage. No, it wasn't Snuff. It was Red Letter Day. Sorry. They both got blown off the stage by the opening band, Mega City 4, before they had any records out. And I started a lifelong friendship with those guys that day. But I had three hours to kill after sound check. So I, I went down the street to this Indian place and was starving. And boy, what a meal that was. Blew you away. Yeah, that was like 1986, He's- and I still remember it. So again, it must be it must be if you remember it that long. And I was yes. eating by myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> and
2: savoring every bite. Limited Miley. This sounds like a good time for question three. Did did we finish off the second one? I'm sorry.
1: I don't know if we did. No,
2: it's fine. We had a nice – it was a nice little segue, and then we lost power, but I think we're good.
1: (laughs) Question question number three.
2: Question three. What is the greatest moment you've had since starting the magazine? Hmm. God. Again, how do you –
1: Children, births, marriage, um
2: hot How about with the magazine? Is there a moment where it's like something happened with the magazine?
1: Oh. oh musically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want I don't want to be a heel and it reminds me of my, my wife asked one of my friends what was who's your favorite writer of all time, and he said Lester Bangs. And she said, There are things to read other than music magazines, sir. How about like Dostoevsky or something? Anyway, um I would say one of the things that shocked me the most was when Springhouse played with Smashing Pumpkins and Hole. We played in between them at the CBGB gig. Wow. And earlier that afternoon, I'd attended Buscox, who I knew. This is 1991. Uh, They played Maxwell's and I was friends with them. So I told them about our gig and didn't expect them to come, as you you do, right? And they all came. And I didn't wow. know they were there because I hadn't seen them. You know, I, I just told the guy at the door if Buzzcocks show up, you know, let them in. And the guy goes, "Of course, <laughs> if any Buzzcocks show up here, <laughs> we're letting them in. Trust me." And what happened was is that when we came off the stage, you know, it was our crowd, and our first album had just come out. It was about the height of our local popularity, and mm-hmm. everyone wanted to see that bill anyway. So we got we got an encore, uh, that being like everybody was co headlining. And when I came up the stage I was in kind of a euphoric state to start with. And this guy grabs me from behind and it says in this British accent, You're great, mate. You were freaking great. You didn't tell me you were such a great drummer. And I'm <laughs> like like who's that? You know, and then I turned around finally and it was Mike Joyce from The Smiths. Oh my goodness. Who had who had been playing in Buzzcock on that tour. Wow. and I'd been hanging out with him. You know, I'd seen like eight or nine gigs on that tour, and I just didn't know what to say because I'd spent so much time listening to the Smiths, and we yeah. put them on our cover when they only had three import singles out. You know, they were a really special band for me, and a lot, a lot was because I, I thought him and Andy Rourke were just a fantastic rhythm section and never got their due. You know, um, obviously Morrissey and Marr were tremendous, but let's have some equal applause for the drummer and the bassist. Always. So I, I was a little stunned by that to start with, but then here comes Steve Diggle and 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 uh, Pete Shelley right behind him, and they're saying the same <laughs> oh, damn man. things. Pete Pete Shelley says, "You know, I always thought you were just a fanboy." He said to me, "Wow, because I I'd, I'd known him. You know, I first met Buzzcocks in '79 when they did that tour with a uh, Gang of Four, and as you do when you're a teenager, you just kept telling them how yep. great they were. Yeah, and to have." possibly my favorite band the age of 17, probably my favorite band as a teenager telling me, you know, when I'm 29 years old that, that I'm a peer, it never occurred to me. You know, It, it still doesn't occur to me. I don't necessarily say I agree with them. Buzzcocks are here and my band is somewhere else, you know? Yeah. But wow. To, to have that kind of praise from someone I admired that fiercely. I mean, Pete Shelley, again, the giant among men, Yeah, just a giant. And, You know, the Smiths and Buzzcocks telling me that they really liked our band. And then they each bought copies of our album at the merch table later. Wow. You know, they actually put their hard-earned money into it. And like, oh, my God. Jesus Christ.
2: And it's like they hadn't seen you as as a musician.
1: No, because I was always coming to their gigs and fawning over them as was their due, frankly. Absolutely their due. I saw eight of the gigs on the 89 comeback tour uh, as far west as Chicago. And I saw about seven or eight on that 91 tour as well. I mean, I just, like the Chameleons in 84, I tried to see every gig I could. Those bands were just, you know, tremendous. And I never thought I'd see the Buzzcocks again. I think issue six, I was actually crying on the page because they'd broken up. Mm. Big take. If you actually buy a copy of issue six, all four pages. The only two times I ever felt like crying was when the Beatles broke up in 1970 or when it was announced. Mm-hmm. And when when uh, the Buscocks broke up in 1981, so I didn't know what to say about that, but it felt it felt good. Uh, yeah. Even, even even if I don't necessarily agree with them, it felt good to be to think I could give them something back. Yeah. And that, every now and then, Steve would mention it to me later. You know, like yeah, I saw you play. You guys were great. You know, that's Thanks, amazing, Steve. Thanks. Now tell me again how you wrote, you know, Airwaves Dream. <laughs> right, <laughs> and what what was why she's a, a chain why is, why is she a girl from the chain store what inspired that let's talk about you <laughs> those songs are amazing sitting around at home you know the, fast um, cars jesus
2: the fourth question you may have already answered it to be honest uh which is what is the greatest compliment you've ever been given
1: so that, that might have to... been that might have been the most surprising compliment I've ever been given. <laughs> okay, I think the best compliment I've ever given is the uh, about dozen people I think who told me that they met their spouse because of my magazine. Oh, amazing! A uh, number of whom ended up having children. So you know, again, without mentioning the Beatles for the 1700th time this interview, <laughs> what was their last you know lyric on their last album? In the end, uh, the love you take is take equal, equal to the, equal love to, the lo- to the life you make. Life you make, I think is the. I, I think I have that right. Sometimes I get lyrics wrong.
2: I don't know. I I have to Google that.
1: Equal to the life you make. Uh, you might be right, and I might be wrong, but my version goes that way. <laughs> uh, that's okay. And you know, I think that's great because here we are again. What did I give anybody for taking up? Existence on this planet,
2: yeah. You know,
1: if we're all if we're all sharing this spinning globe, how in any way did I make it better? Yeah, I'm not sure writing about music is an essential service in a time where people are risking their lives to save other people, and that's always been the case even before this coronavirus. Right, but uh, I'm not really capable of doing that. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a soldier or a. I haven't never been struck in a position where I could bring a baby into the world like Mitch from Springhouse, who did it six six or seven times as a paramedic. Yeah. You know, when they couldn't make it to the hospital. But that was my role to play. And if I did that, then
2: good. You know? I have to ask, I have to ask when when you say the magazine, was it someone like Give me a. Can you give me a for instance? Like, how did it work? Was it like a currency between two people? Like a like a social thing? Or they yeah they bonded because, they over
1: writing? both liking the magazine.
2: Got it. Got it.
1: And that's it's it. like it. You know, you and I are not boyfriend and girlfriend or uh, wife and husband, but right. We we met under the same auspices. You know, right. we, we had similar taste in common and a similar passion for music.
0: Right. And
1: I think that's what bonded these people together because you probably wouldn't be reading Big Takeover unless you had those two things.
0: right?
1: We don't cover people because they're celebrities or because they will sell ads for us. We cover them because we feel very excited about the music they've given us, either live or on record. So I, I guess that's a compliment in its own kind of yeah. profound way. Yeah. Other people have just said some really, really nice things, you know, like um, like the guy from Not A Surf. I'm a big Not A Surf fan, and Matt mm-hmm. Collins said he... He always loved reading Big Takeover in the '80s. I never had any idea that he would one day be a reader turned into someone who I would greatly admire to such an extent. And their new yeah. album is phenomenal. For example, you know, ten or uh, eight or nine albums into their long career, yeah. So that's I just, a good... Um,
2: John Vanderslice, who I'm friends with, he opened for them down in L.A. and I caught that show, and they were fantastic. Um, so they're still yeah, perfect it.
1: example. And Mickey from Lush said something to me uh, last year, just off the cuff. She just said, "You were always one of the good ones, Jack. You yep. know, you you were always just doing it for the love of doing it." And I never really appreciated not you per se, but the people who did that when I was younger. But I really do now, now that we're yep. back. You know, when Lush came back, and now that she has her newer band, Poroshko, I think they're called. They're just fantastic too. No, and I, I thought that was really nice, you know. It wasn't like I love your writing or your magazine's awesome, dude, or anything like that. It just that uh, that she recognized what we were trying to do, you know. And that's true of everyone else too. Who's in bands I like and put out magazines I like. Every time I see Vail, I go over to his house in San Francisco, uh, just off Broadway up those that little hill, and I sit in his kitchen and I just look at him and sit. Just, I need to buy you dinner tonight, Vale. And I've had about a dozen chances to buy Vale dinner, and I've done it every time. And I say, give me that damn check. And I'm not letting you pay a penny for this meal. The way I met him, in fact, this is a pretty good story. Is that I was asked by the Institute of Contemporary Arts to give a talk at a dinner they were giving. Um about, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, 12 years ago. And I declined because I wasn't going to be in New York. I was going to be in San Francisco. Like I said, I was going to be in Montclair. So this is 2008 now that I think about it. And the guy said, well, look, we're going to do one in San Francisco too. Would you mind presenting there? I said, sure. Great. And I started racking my brain because I wasn't going to be in New York. They said I needed to present an object and talk about what the object meant to me and why it was profound, An an art object. And I thought about it and thought, oh, I'm going to present an issue of Search and Destroy. <laughs> I found the one where the mutants have the googly eyes on the cover. And I brought that with me and they projected it on a screen behind me. And I sat there in a suit. And I had this idea a week before, like I've never met Vale, I've never had the gumption. I just called the number, you know, on the website. And this yep. lady answered, who's now a good friend of mine, his, his missus. Marion, and she says, "Can I help you?" And I said, "Uh, "I've I've come to invite Vale to a dinner." She says, "Huh?" I said, "Well, it's a nice dinner in a nice hotel, and it's going to be free." And she just started laughing at me. And she goes, "She goes." I go, "Why are you laughing?" She goes, "Well, if it's a free dinner, Vale will come (laughs) because they live really Spartan, you know." Sure. And so he showed. That's how I met him. Is while I was talking about him. I gave Incredible. this long speech. I printed it in my magazine about, you know, what it was like to be in San Francisco at the time. Jello Biafra was running for mayor. Uh, yeah. Louis Ferenghetti and Allen Ginsberg gave him the seed money for the first issue. I mean, I, I I posited it in a larger culture.
0: Yeah. And
1: how punk was part of a larger culture, how when I was a kid I met like Jim Jeromeusch and Keith Haring and people like that at gigs, you know, was filmmakers and sculptors and everybody. Andy Warhol came into my DJ booth twice, and uh, John Belushi spent 40 minutes with me once watching the Circle Jerks in my DJ booth. It was like that. It was like a larger thing. And Vale was just a great conduit for me, what was going on in the West Coast when those bands weren't even making records. So there you go. I mean, I get to buy him dinner uh, that one, the Institute of Contemporary Arts paid for instead of my meager <laughs> pocket. But every time I've, bu- I've bought Veil Dinner, I've known I've done the right thing in my life because I'm paying yeah. back, man. I'm paying back something that guy gave me. And the research books are pretty damn cool too. Yeah. Nowadays, okay. he sends me these funny little comics that he's a character in, not that he makes them himself. And I just feel so delighted. Yeah. <laughs> Someone else knows how great he is, not just me. Um, oh, right, wanna... oh, and just to finish that story off, you know, yeah, it was yeah. like it was like bringing somebody to show and tell. The, a line formed around our table after yes. my talk, and they're all like, "I had incredibly strange films when I was in college, or I really loved that pranks book you did, yeah." Or I had modern primitives. It was like, it's like wow, everyone else loves Vale like I do. They just never had a chance to meet him either, right? So, so take a bow, son. Well, that's take amazing. a freaking bow.
2: I did The one thing you said earlier that I wanted to reference was you said about, you know, making art or making music isn't for the front, like the people on the front lines, like the people delivering babies and everything. But I would argue that that's the reason we want to be around. (laughs) Like the reason that life is life is because we do have this beautiful thing. Right. Past life
1: and death issues and past the hierarchy of needs where we all need food and shelter and clothes, you know, that kind of thing. Well, how are we going to fill our meager existences with meaning? That's been a question for mankind since you know we we descended from apes. So, this is how we try to give a, a very strange existence meaning, and how we can make it more meaningful again is to connect to each other. When I've been going through things like really heartbroken breakups or when my dad died and two of my best friends, you know. Where did I turn to? Well, you turn to humans, of course, because they come to the wake or they you know, say, you're a good guy, Jack. Things will get better, you know, as people do when they're at their best. But uh, apart from that, I turned to music. And yeah. even people who were dead before I was born, like Hank Williams, could sing a song for me, Yeah, just for me. He's been dead since either 1952 or 1953, depending on what side of New Year's Eve he died on. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't born till the 60s, but Hank Williams sung for me in those times. And Bessie Smith in the 1930s sung for me. Yep. And Lead Belly in the 1940s sung for me. And even people alive, you know, the Consid Angels and Simon and Garfunkel were singing for me. The Birds sang for me. Billy Bragg with his breakup album sang for me. And thank you, all those guys, to sing for me like they did. They didn't say, I'm going to sit down and sing a song for Jack Rabbit when he's going to be heartbroken someday. <laughs> but they did. And they gave yeah. me that present. And it, how profound is that again? You yeah. know, when you're suffering to have a friend like that to turn to. Yeah. Uh, real people and artistry, or even just sculptors and painters. I took solace from paintings I saw, you know, that I thought, wow, this is how people felt 100 years ago. And it's just my turn. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's what we need to keep alive.
1: Yeah, and, and euphoria too. It's not always just heartbreak. Right. You know, people have written songs. Uh, the House of Love wrote that song, The Beatles and the Stones, made it good to be alone. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Guy Chadwick. <laughs> we opened for the House of Love in 1990 on that tour, and I said, God damn it, Guy, you've yeah. written some great songs, but the lyrics to that just hit me where I live. <laughs> And you could put somebody else's name in there, you know, if you were a John Prine fan. John Prine made it good to be alone. Yeah. Adam Schlesinger made it good to be alone.
2: Tough, yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: Um, even Lemmy, you know, I met Lemmy a couple of times. A few of those motorhead recordings <laughs> in a very yep. different way made it very good to be alone.
2: Right. He's, oh, a I mean, He's a bummer. Yeah. He's when, when wife- a bummer. When my wife- Back when we could leave the house, when my, my wife would go out of the house, that's, you know, Motorhead's one of the bands I crank. I'll just sure. put it on and yeah. just feel the energy coming off speakers. Just that energy.
1: Right. Yeah. I I lost a portion of my hearing the only two times I ever saw them. Two times in three days, but wow.
2: <laughs> Probably worth it.
1: Yeah. I was in the front row when they came on as the um, Ennio Morricone's The Good and the Bad and the Ugly was playing. Oh, man. And by the... End of the first song, I was in the 10th row. At the end of the second <laughs> song, I was in the 20th row. And by the end of the fourth song, I was out on 13th Street. <laughs> like, I can't take this. I'm <laughs> sorry, Lemmy, you're great, but oh boy.
2: I've uh, I've had similar issues with Melvin's shows. In the yeah, some very similar.
1: Dinosaur Jr. back when they weren't drawing yeah. anybody in the 80s. Oh, Lordy. My Bloody Valentine. Yeah, them too. Yeah. Husker du and Maxwell's 84. 150 Ooh, that uh, room is venues. tiny well
2: it was tiny. yeah yeah and and
1: uh that was before bob got tinnitus so
2: cranking that, that when he fly, had the, that
1: like- flying v of his was turned up to stun
2: <laughs> and, and wasn't he using like a fender twin on top of a four or two a four by 12 like he had like six yeah, speakers going
1: the drummer yeah. in me never looks yeah sorry i don't even take notice with drums Grant Hart was playing People would come up to me on tour in like, uh, you know, Seattle or or uh, Mississippi or whatever and say, like, how did you pick Tom Imperial Star drones? And I'd say, <laughs> uh, they were on sale. <laughs> I got them used. It was like $500 and that was all I could afford. And they sounded good when I hit them in the store.
2: Yeah. There's, there's something very endearing about that, by the way.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I tried to get a premiere sponsorship my, my lawyer put in for me and they just laughed at me even when we were on MTV. So no premiere sponsorship for Jackrabbit. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, they didn't know what they were
1: missing. Of course, I picked that because the buscock drummer always sounded so phenomenal to me.
2: I was going to say, there's always someone that you admire that's using it that you're like, oh, I should get yeah. that.
1: Go, go play Move, Moving Away from the Pulse Beat and tell me that John Marr is not another walking god. Great. And John was always also very complimentary of my drumming, even though he never saw me play. And even though his real passion is is drag racing, his souped up Bug BW Bug, sweet super sweet guy, great drummer. Does great Facebook posts. Yeah, posts a lot of old uh, clips and and stuff of the Buzzcocks in his day. Yeah. So there you go, moving away from the pulse beat That's what I wanted my drums to sound like <laughs> As as brought to you by Martin Rushent's production And Doug Bennett's engineering in Olympic Studios Good God <laughs> Thank you Thank you all three of you gentlemen
0: <laughs> And Pete Shelley for great. writing
1: that song Well I never did get to play a premier drum kit I asked for one when we did our second album in Los Angeles And there wasn't one for hire So I ended up with a set of DW's
2: Oh, well, DW's
1: yeah, I would have I would have preferred uh, my uh, actual drum kit, but that was fine. They sounded okay, of
2: the time. DW Yeah,
1: but there's a, there's a reason why my drum sound on the second album is so different than the other two, or the other two albums that we cut in my other two bins.
2: Got it. It makes a difference.
1: Had to be rented. Yeah, and that's all not right. a complaint. I was lucky to be making albums in Los Angeles.
0: Oh, I didn't
2: so, take it as a complaint at all. Yeah, well, you know, people,
1: <laughs> you know, like that thing, first world problems, right? Right. Oh, poor baby, had to play DWS. <laughs> oh, you must have been so horrible. Oh, tough I'm life.
0: crying for you, buddy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we When we did uh, our electrical audio stuff up in Chicago, um, my drummer was like a kid in a candy store because you just walk in and they have, I don't know how many drum kits and cymbals. And he was totally turning into, I. I it was literally like I was watching Christmas, watching him yeah. go through and pick this stuff out. Oh, no, there you go. That's again, and that's, that's what
1: makes life interesting. Whatever yeah. you take an interest in and whatever you know, and you want to know more, it's it's how we pass our days better than just like, you know, watching reruns of the love boat or something. Fantasy cool. Island.
2: Question five. What
1: hey, is you, your- Do you know that Chuck Berry song, uh, the 13 question method? No.
2: Should I listen question, to it? Yes. Yeah.
1: I, question. It's all about dating a girl. Question number four. Where's the door? <laughs> question <laughs> number think... five. I won't give you no jive. All question right, number six. How long to get fixed? <laughs> Go listen that's to it on my,
2: this over. I was going to say, that's on my later tonight over a glass yeah. of bourbon list. Chuck Berry. Re- wrong, by the oh, way. May I,
1: wrong light his music live.
2: I've already gone through two pens talking to you because okay. you're saying Sorry. such tremendously great stuff. And I'm like, okay, I got it. I got it. It's just my nature. No, I, I know. Like I, share, I like
1: sharing what I like and I, what I remember. I knew
2: before the mics were on, I grabbed a mol- <laughs> an empty Moleskine and I just was like, I'm sure uh, this is going to be Jack's going to be my encyclopedia today. I just let me just
1: apologize to anybody who thinks it's just way off track. It's just the way my brain works.
2: <laughs> no, this is amazing. Uh, Question okay. number
1: six. I'm sorry.
2: No, it's okay. We're only on number five, but
1: oh, five. Okay, sorry. We'll
2: go there. We were. It's right. You went to number six with the Chuck Berry song, so it made sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Question five. What is your greatest time of year? And just to be clear, that's the time of year that you feel you're the most you, the most alive.
1: May the 10th.
2: <laughs> and? That is... uh,
1: that's almost exactly to the day every year where I have finished the spring issue. It's at the printers. I've handed into the printer the subscription list, the yep. uh, distributor list. The store list of who's getting it directly, yep. And there is nothing else right now that's pressing, and I can go back to having yep. a forty-hour-a-week job instead of an eighty-hour-a-week job, and the and the weather I've been missing is now mine to have. Great. I guess maybe not this year, but uh, every other year, yep. and I yep. dine with Jeff Kelson at Dizzy's. And I feel like a free man and I'm proud of my new issue because I wouldn't issue it if I wasn't, you know, because no one's making me. It's not like you have a record yep. contract and I'm sorry, guys, that's good enough. We're going to have to release that, you know. Right. Uh, I couldn't be happier assuming that I'm in good health. And my yep. kids are, you know, going out to play every day because the weather is great and they're happy and, you know, spring is in the air in New York when it's just lovely here what have I got really to complain about? Everything's—it's oh. like that uh, that song from Oklahoma, right? Uh, oh, what a beautiful morning! Oh. Everything's going my way. Yeah, I played that on drums in uh, our sixth grade band, sixth grade orchestra. So I still remember that song.
2: So you played drums all growing up in school as well,
1: uh, starting in fourth grade. Yeah, because that's when they allowed drummers, and we the first orchestra was in fourth grade. And there was twenty of us that auditioned, and five of us that made it, and I was one of them. So I I won drum lessons for about four months until my teacher fired me because I <laughs> I was doing nothing but practicing rock and roll instead of jazz. Early punker. Yeah, he should have he should have told me that if you could play jazz, you could play anything else. That's what he should right. have told me.
2: But it's to his credit, for the best.
1: Uh, but before he fired me, I told him I wanted to play to my Beatles records. You know, at the age. of of, uh, 10. And he, he said, do you have a copy of Sergeant Pepper? And I said, of course I have all the records. And yeah. he said, well, take out, uh, the one, the, re- the reprise, the Sergeant Pepper reprise. And I said, okay. And we put it on my record player next to the drum set. He goes, okay, now listen to this count off, which I've learned since was Paul. Paul counts one, two, three, four. Then Ringo comes in by himself. Other right. than I think. And, uh, he goes, listen to that beat. Okay. And without the, the rest of the, without the oh, rest of the guys oh, oh, playing, oh. I could hear it. Yeah. And he says, if you can play that beat, you can play ninety nine percent of every rock and roll song ever invented. If that's really what you want to do, Jack. So thank you, Chap Osterander. <laughs> you may have fired me for cause, but you did me that solid because I learned within five minutes that I could play two out of those three things. If we leave aside the left foot, All I right. could play the right foot and the left left hand. The left leg. Or the right hand and the left hand, or you know, two out of any three, and within a week I could do all three at the same time, and I was like, "Holy cow, I'm a drummer!"
2: <laughs> there you go, kids. There's your there's your lesson. I told there? I've actually told that
1: to about three hundred people who end up becoming <laughs> drummers, well, and they they said it did help because it they're not used to isolating drums in a full mix, yeah. And Ringo's beat is just so solid and so clear. Okay. All it is is um, eighth, eighth notes on the hi-hat with your right hand, um, hitting two and four on the snare drum with your left hand, and then the the um, bass drum does one and 3 and. It's as basic as you can be. It'll take you a lot longer than that to become a guitar player, won't it? Yes. It'll take you a lot longer than that to play every other instrument man has devised. But if you want to be a drummer within a week, you can get that. And then you, you can go. play along with your record collection, which is what I did thereafter. I remember being proud of myself because I played along with The Sound of Silence. Wow. And then I I had my older brother come in and listen to it. And he goes, well, you were with In Time, but that didn't really fit the song because I was playing too loud. <laughs> I was doing the Who version. <laughs> right. I was doing Dude. the Pretty Things version The Wailing Sound it. of Silence. Yeah. Probably sounded better. Uh, I don't know. They had the Wrecking Crew played on the original. I don't think I was better than Hal Blaine at the Edge
2: of 10. But it certainly was spirited. <laughs> the spirit. Yeah. I used to do. I used to set up magazines on my bed like it was a drum set, and I, had, I yeah. bought a pair of drumsticks. That's, yeah. I, that's how I used to play.
1: When I was four, I got reprimanded by my mother because I took all the pots and pans out, and <laughs> I took out some spoons and forks, and I started hitting every pot that we had along with Rollover Beethoven's beatles chuck berry cover yeah and instead of being charmed <laughs> my mother was not charmed <laughs> in 1966 she was i like,
2: mean that's uh, a, that's not a pleasant sound
1: uh well aside from that metal that's metal. Not, my mother was not of the opinion that that's what we did with kitchen uh, pots and pans so
2: it's no dw
1: there was no repeat of that particular concert <laughs> there was no dw no Although well, the, go- the smaller pot sounded higher pitched, I noticed.
2: Sure. <laughs> even even at that age. You were already catching on. Yeah. How do you like that? All right. Let's go to question number six. What is the greatest year of your life so far? Hmm.
1: Maybe 2002. Okay. Because... um. Both of the bands I was in, Reunited, uh, that I'd previously been in. Yeah. uh,
0: Springhouse came
1: back, did a Chameleons tour. So I got to see the Chameleons another eight times. And we opened every one of the shows. And that was just out of this world to do that because they'd been a big influence on us. And yet our music didn't sound exactly like them because uh, Mitch, who wrote all the songs, had such a cornucopia of influence that we were bound to take it somewhere else. You know, he was really influenced by John Martin and Nick Drake before he was a big name and uh, Bert Yanch and people like that. So that's why he was playing a nylon stringed acoustic in the first place. So I thought it was a good bill. You know, people seemed to like it and we had been gone eight years, so they treated us well. And then even worse came back for the only time it ever did. Uh, We did two shows at CBGB with, uh, five other bands we'd been playing with in the early 80s. Wow. Uh, Kraut, Kraut and Adrenaline O.D. and the False Prophets and the Mob and the Nihilistics. And to revisit that, again, to revisit that scene with all those yeah. people who I respected admired and had such a great time with and have such a great time with them again and to see how good they really were even 10 years later, that was very special. And yeah. our band had broken up a real bad note and then we'd repaired all the friendships within a year. Mm. So that's the note we've left off. Instead, the four of us are still very close friends. Rebecca, in fact, our singer, was living with us until recently. And uh, I spoke with her as recently as two days ago, you know, having dated her briefly in the early 80s and having her been the singer of the band. And Bobby, I speak to on Facebook every week pretty much. And Eric, the bass player, I said hello to uh, through Rebecca because she went to visit him and stuff. So you know, that was a great year uh, to be last burning embers in Springhouse and even worse all at the same time. I also think uh, 2010 when we had the 30th anniversary of Big Takeover, was very special Yeah. against Springhouse played both nights. We did our second album the second night, but it was much more special to me to present a number of my all time favorite bands, quite a few of whom had never played for a big crowd in New York before and did.
0: Mm-hmm. And that
1: meant a lot to me that, for Against could play for 300 people in New York City and and get the you know love and appreciation their music earned for such incredible recordings. And yep. that turned out to be the last time they ever played. Mm. Uh, Don McGlashan of the Mutton Birds to play for a couple hundred people and people realize how brilliant he is. Um, the Avengers and Channel 3 and Mark Burgess doing Chameleon songs. Mm. Uh, Sleepover, Disaster, Disaster viz queen they just knocked everyone out these are bands that just didn't you know catch on with the wider public they had you know little cult followings that could sustain them for a little while but you know put them all on the same stage together john hour and the posies paul collins of the beat and the nerves you know flower during their first gig in like 20 years mm-hmm. just an endless riot of riches and then I could stand up there and introduce them all and say you're really gonna like this next act. Yeah. <laughs> like Ed Sullivan or something. Yeah, I really You've been good so far, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you've been really well
2: behaved. <laughs> well, I, I the the thing the the time I met you face to face was at the bell house.
1: That was where it was, Kirkland. yeah, those two nights.
2: I don't think I came to those shows, but I think that was when I realized that that was happening. Like that scene was kind of happening down there in the early 2000s, because it was right after I moved to New York in 99.
1: Yeah. And that was the tail end of it, 2010. Of course, most of the bands we presented weren't from New York. And a lot of the people who came weren't from New York either, which is why I can never do those festivals very often. It has to be a total event of that sort where people fly in. I was thinking of doing one this year for the 40th, since that was for the 30th, but I'm glad I never got past the thinking stages because obviously I would have wasted all my time.
2: Yeah, we had a two week tour that we had to cancel out here on the west coast. Yeah, it was really you you think about how much. Well, you put so much people put so much work into the planning and the logistics. It's
1: all those bands that we're going to play at South by Southwest and booked uh, a whole tour around it. Yeah, months and months of planning. I remember what our booking agent went through to get our three tours together. Because yeah. I was on the phone with her constantly. Do you want to play Grand Rapids or Detroit? Well, what kind of question is that? You know what I mean? Yeah. But she'd say, Well, you sold 90 albums in Grand Rapids and you sold five <laughs> in Detroit. And I said, Let's play Grand Rapids. All right. And then, you know, I met my future girlfriend of four years there that night. So I'm glad yeah. I took that call. Yeah. There you go. Never thought I'd spend so much time in Grand Rapids. Funny. And then we played Kalamazoo a year and a half ago. And a whole bunch of those people I met from that Grand Rapids time came down. Awesome. So, yeah. It's all a continuum that
2: way. Yeah, it really is. The music it's really, does it's it. really sweet. Shall, shall we move on to question seven? Mm-hmm. We're in the home stretch. What is your greatest regret? Um... I don't have a
1: lot, I'm glad to say, in terms of things I could have uh, been at power to effect. You know, like sometimes things didn't work out for you, but it wasn't because you didn't do something or you failed to give it your best effort. Uh, I wish Springhouse had gotten two rungs further up the 10-rung ladder so that we didn't have to break up in 1993. But even then, we've come back four or five times since because we stayed such good friends. So even that's not, and again, that's nothing I could have controlled. We didn't sell enough records and the record company lost interest in us after Nirvana as they did every other band that was selling 10 or 20,000 just wasn't good enough anymore. Yeah. Some of the regrets I have are also things that I couldn't control. Like I was, I lost my DJ career in the clubs in the late eighties because my girlfriend of seven years uh, who used to come and put my records away and see the shows with me she decided to push a button on the console. Like, why? Why would you do that? I've never understood that. And she sorted out the system. It was an Iggy Pop gig too at 1018 was the name of the hall. It was going to be 2,000 people there that night. I DJed the Bad Brains gig there earlier that year and had a great time, you know, DJing for a couple thousand people. And I got fired. And mm. that was I was working for, I think it was Ron Delsner was one of the two big promoters at the time and I'd gotten that far in my career where I was getting paid like $300 to play records for large crowds of people, you know. Yeah. I it didn't totally kill my career because I remember I got a gig at drums which was another club every Monday. So I DJed uh this series they did for 6 months there right by the 59th Street Bridge and we had like uh you know the Feelies and the Throwing Muses and um morton downey jr <laughs> that was one of the acts i dj'd for i played no a lot way. of classic i played a lot of classic rock that night people that were like You're the crazy best
2: dj I ever heard man he was that crazy tv host guy wasn't yeah he?
1: that was one of the my mondays you know yeah it was like the it was the x-rated version too because his <laughs> his um special guest was al goldstein of screw magazine
2: oh man that must have been wild so they were just you
0: know
1: uh trading sexual insults back and forth you know that are not um uh, okay for family entertainment like this podcast
2: <laughs> <laughs> and they were on stage like talking to each other and you just DJ'd yeah before? yeah
1: okay well i dj'd before and after yeah sure and there was a break in between and i DJed the break and this this these people were coming up, you know, like yelling at Goldstein like you're smut, man. You don't have any educational value at all. You're just, you know, evil. And he he'd say back to the stuff like, "Oh yeah, what comic books have you been reading? You're such a, you know, critic <laughs> on literature." <laughs> it was that kind of thing. It was just really yeah. funny. Yeah. I, had, you know, I was just getting paid to DJ for people. I didn't have a stance on Al Goldstein or Martin Downey Jr. I was just showing up to get to do my job. Yeah, but it was it was bizarre. I've had a lot of bizarre experiences in this business. You yep. know, I de- I DJed a fashion show once at the Ritz for Steven Strauss, or Steven Sprouse rather, and that was that was an interesting challenge. I had to come up with music that they could loop for ten minutes. You know, while the models slink down the runway. Wow! So he, she had this like really uh, naughty lingerie line. So I picked Nightclubbing by Iggy Pop. Great, because <laughs> it sounded Perfect. sleazy to me. Yeah,
2: and it, it seemed to be the right cadence, too, for models to strut to. And here's, I've had an here's, interesting life. <laughs> I was going to say, here's where, Jack, you were ahead of your time, because then Trent Reznor looped that song for that song Closer. Yeah, he that, probably, he probably a, just
1: heard the same thing I did, you know? That's a stripper anthem.
2: So all, the credit
1: to, all the credit to Iggy Pop, not to me <laughs> or, or Trent Reznor. And uh, to the opening scene, I had uh, the live version of Suzy and the Banshee's Israel was the opening montage. Yeah. Because uh, it again, it starts with just the drums and the bass,
0: Yeah. and that
1: was a good one for them to walk out on. And it, it started with Stravinsky's version of *Rites of Spring* from that live album. So the, we actually started with classical music, and then when it turns into Susan Banzee's version, is when the models came out from behind the curtain. That was 1986. Amazing. I was recommended by Lisa Robinson, the famous rock critic, because she, she thought I had a finger on the pulse or something, and I'd make her tapes and stuff, and she'd really like them. And she'd yeah. been covering punk rock when I was not even aware it existed. So it was good, good to return that favor too. Uh, I used to buy her magazine, Rock Scene, in Summit, and she'd have like pictures of bands I'd seen like the Dills, and I couldn't believe it. She'd have a freaking picture of the Dills in her national magazine. So yeah. good for Lisa Robinson for doing that.
2: I don't just want treated to go... them like they were any other band. Limited mileage. I don't want to go too far down this road, but I just want to tell you, it seems to me, and you were there, that time period in the, like from the mid to late 80s in New York City, I, I romanticized that time. Like, but you don't have
1: to because it was true. Yeah. I, I am a great resistor of rose-colored glasses. I'm a bit sure. of an amateur historian. As I've peppered a few remarks here, as you can probably tell. Uh, I'd say uh, you're
2: more than amateur. I think. Well, you're no, my, my you're wife art. is a
1: professional. She's the one with the PhD. <laughs> there you go. There from, you go from Yale. But I, I one of the reasons I'm married to her is, apart from music, is that we do share an interest in history. And I was an economics major at NYU, so I have many interests. And as a historian, I'm not interested in people being so nostalgic about how great things used to be, unless they really were. Yeah, there's a reason why there's been about 50 books or 100 books about those days. And I came in really well with the tail end was cause CBGB's got going 73, 74, 75. And I didn't show up until 77, 78. Yeah. You know, So even as a fan, I didn't actually show up to the club itself until right. probably 79, I'm guessing. Uh, having started with the bigger shows at the Palladium and the Beacon Theater, you know, like Elvis Costello and the talking heads and stuff like that. Blondie. But, um, I think uh, that was a really remarkable scene because it was cheap. You know, all those people were living on rice and beans. When I yeah. finally moved to my first apartment in New York in 81, my rent was 240 It was shared three ways. So Dave Stein paid 80 Eric Kyle, the even worse bassist, played 80 and I paid 80
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, we were so broke, we didn't even have electricity for a couple months. We needed to cobble together the money. Wow. So we were, you know, using batteries for tape players to listen to our music. But that, that was something you could do with very little money. We needed $720 to move into that place. And I, I walked into the landlord's place in the worst neighborhood in Brooklyn with $720 in my sneaker and uh, <laughs> fif- 15 bucks in my pocket in case I got mugged because I didn't want to use up my entire life savings getting mugged off of Marcy <laughs> Avenue in 1981.
2: Wow!
1: And this, you know, this guy, this really fat guy with suspenders, really interesting New York character. I really liked him. He was smoking this really stinky cigar. He says, "Did you bring the money?" And I started <laughs> taking my shoe off, and he's like, "Why are you taking your shoe off? What has that got to do with it?" And I'm like, well, uh, the, your money's in in my in shoe, my, sir. In my shoe. He goes, "Oh, <laughs> smart man! <laughs> That's one way to be sure." Because he didn't want to check or anything, you know, if I wanted to move in right away. But as a result, we could have our band. All three of us, three of our foreign members lived there. Everyone but Bobby and Dave, who was our original guitar player and co founder of the band as well as the magazine. So we had ourselves a grand old time. It was cheap to rehearse, you know, it was cheap to go to gigs, started getting on the guest list a lot. The drinks were cheap at the holiday. Yeah, you could have this great existence with very little money, and we had very little money, and so did everyone else living that existence. If you interview all James Chance or whomever these days, they'll tell you they lived on nothing. Yeah, can you do that now? No, you cannot.
2: I mean, in any major city. I was out in Bed Stuy on tour, Bed Stuy, and I I, I was shocked. I was looking around like, and that was—I mean, I lived—I was a New Yorker, ninety-nine to twenty ten.
1: Yeah. So you and remember you still, when it was bad. Yeah. Well, it
2: was, I mean, I remember when Avenue B and C, at least you didn't go there. And that was oh, very, yeah. The, the cabs wouldn't 20. take you there.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we used to rehearse on Avenue B and the taxi wouldn't take you there. It's yeah. a get out. I'm not going there. Too many people, too many cab drivers mugged. Yeah. Too many people pulling Crazy. guns on you when you get down there. I'm like, I'm not yeah. going to pull a gun on you, sir. i got drumsticks, though. I might pull those on you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, wait,
2: my I might beat up.
1: you to death with my two my my two <laughs> regal tips.
2: <laughs> um, I did enjoy Downtown '81 when that film came out because it felt authentic. The one with um, Basquiat.
1: Yeah, I met him too at, at Max's Kansas City. I'm I'm sure. Yeah, he was there a lot. Yeah, somebody introduced us. Yeah. Keith, like I said, Keith and people like that, they were part of that music scene. And a lot of other people whose names don't aren't well-remembered anymore but were artists as well and filmmakers. Yeah. Very interesting scene in that sense. One of the last times where it really was artists as opposed to just music people, and yeah. they brought an artist sensibility and way of approaching music when they made their own bands. Look at Captain we- Beefheart. He gave up music just to do paintings.
2: Yeah, and... I, I still to this day love his records. Like they feel yeah. modern. They feel modern right. to me.
1: Well, it doesn't surprise me that when he became a painter instead, he approached it with the same kind of you know very idiosyncratic view of things. Yeah. So that was what that scene was about. I inherited it. I didn't start that scene. I walked yeah. into something, like the pilgrims walked into um, Plymouth after the Native Americans had fled. Yeah. You know, because they had their own plague. We talk about plagues. Yeah. You know the. There was this whole village waiting for the pilgrims because they had fled. Well, fortunately, I was able to take a village that was still being used, the CBGB, Maxis Kansas City, and eventually Mud Club in Tier 3, and hurrah, and then Peppermint Lounge scene Right. that we felt very much a part of, especially Tier 3. What fun that was. It was just great, great time to meet these people who had been doing this stuff for a couple of years, and they helped show us the ropes, you know? We were babes in the woods, but not for long because we had people to show us. And they took the time to do that. And more gratitude on my part. They didn't treat us like stupid suburban kids, like you dumb, dumb clucks, you know?
2: Yeah. They said, hey,
1: hey, you're a DJ, aren't you? You got lots of records. Why don't you come DJ our show on Sunday? Like, huh? What? We'll pay you 100 bucks. What? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sure, I'll do that. I pay records all the time for nobody.
2: I mean, it feels like that's why the music from that time period and that, that geographic location is, is still so, you listen to it, and it sounds so fresh.
1: Well, the, you know, it was off the radar. It was done for no other reason than to make the music. Yeah. Most of those bands after the original CBGB bands never got a record deal, and the bands that we started never got record deals. When Even Worse broke up, all we'd put out was two songs from a compilation that was due in a couple of weeks. So we'd release nothing after having played seventy-five gigs, a whole set worth of material that didn't get released until two thousand and two. Yeah, and I'm glad I, I sold one last week, and I just wrote the guy who bought it and said thank you. You know, we recorded this stuff in nineteen eighty-one. It's nice that you want to hear it now, and that you have heard it on Bandcamp. Yeah, and you heard it and liked it and want to buy it. So thank you. Because we didn't have it, good. we didn't have a record out when we were around. Right. It At still feels that, good that when money. someone
2: gives you money for your yeah. music.
1: It's I mean, even, even if they just sent me an email and said I checked out right. any of any of my three bands on Bandcamp and said they enjoyed it, I'm perfectly happy. Money's nice, but we made those records because we loved them and so did those bands that you're talking about. There was no suggestion to television that they were going to score a deal when they talked Haley right. Crystal into letting him play their country bluegrass club. I don't think television had any intention of playing country or bluegrass or blues. And to Hilly's credit, he didn't say, I'm sorry, did you see the sign? We're a country, bluegrass, and blues club. You can't play here. He just said, Well, okay, guys, if you want to play my club, come on Sunday.
2: Speaking of we'll television, what you got. we were doing our, when we did our little four week tour in October in the Northeast, we heard Marquee Moon everywhere. Like, uh-huh. it's like it's somehow, in the, I don't know, the algorithm that's happening in the moment.
1: Well, for about a year of my life, the only place I ever heard it was Jeff Hutchinson's basement. <laughs> <laughs> you would not hear that record going out anywhere in your life, right? It is funny how time has corrected so much crap, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe people are listening a little less now to April Wine or something like that,
2: <laughs> right? And it's they're listening kind of like
1: television instead or early Devo. We can hope. Yeah. Well, I know it cause I see it. People, <laughs> people aren't surprised. You know, there's people wearing Ramon shirts who've never even heard the band. Right.
2: Yeah. I have a whole thing about that, which I don't have to get into, but yeah.
1: Well, all I got back then is how do you like that weirdo music? Right. Why do they all dress alike like that? What's, what's up with those, you know, rips in their jeans? Like the dumbest, <laughs> dumbest crap. Really. Yeah. You know, like, why don't you just listen to the music? that might actually be the smarter thing to do before you pronounce your judgment. You're so scared of someone doing something different that you won't even give it a chance. Just like I used to be. That's what I'd tell them. I, I was yeah. you once. I'm much younger, but I had friends who, who taught me not to be such a moron.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I'm trying to teach you now. If you open well, up your mind, you'll you'll get on, on unending riches, even if you don't like this music.
2: I feel like I have to ask you the last question then, because we're right there, which is, what is the greatest advice you've gotten or can give? Wow. Um,
1: you know, something trite like be yourself. I'll give you an example that isn't so trite. I went to my high school reunion for our 25th. So that would have been 2005. And uh, I wasn't sure what they think of me because I was the, you know, the proverbial only punk rocker in the yeah. school until my senior year when I convinced a few other seniors and a couple of, believe it or not, sophomores. So I had a little crew.
2: Yeah.
1: I went to a different high school than the other people I've been talking about for three years. I went to private school for three years and it was a prep school. And those people were especially Uh, wary of anything weird or strange or unusual yeah so when i went to this reunion i thought people were going to still kind of like treat me like a bit of a black sheep bit of like the token weirdo or something and all night i was there all these people who you know barely ever gave me the time of day kept coming up to me and saying like i never told you this jack but i really really admired you and i was like huh no, wait, wait a minute. Wait, back up here. <laughs> I didn't sense any of that in 1978, 79, right. and 80. So this really cannot be true. you know. And they said, well, you were about the only person in the school who had the guts to do what he felt was, was right, you know, yeah. felt was, was exciting to him. And if no one else liked it, then tough tooties, basically. And I thought, really? That's what you thought? And they went like, yeah, I was just too young and scared. To, to, I would always look at you out of the corner of my eye and say, How does he do that? Why does he do that? What yeah. does he get out of that? You know, I guess those maybe are the sort of people who show up at reunions, and maybe other people who didn't think that of me or didn't like me or just thought I was full of beans didn't show up at the reunion. It's possible. Yeah. It's a subset in a way, because it's not like the whole class was there. Probably about half the class was there. But those people saying that to me it was really it caught me unawares. I didn't take it as a boy like how great am I. I took it as more like, okay, so they did understand what I was doing. What I was doing is saying, This is not difficult. You can follow me. You you don't even have to be a punk rocker. You can just take on anything. You can be openly gay if you want to be. You can be a powerful female instead of you know going to cheerleader or subservient role if you want to, because you know, I would show them pictures of Martina Waimuth, or um, you know Debbie Harry, or any of the women on the scene. You know, uh, yeah. uh, Alice Bag, or Carla Mad Dog, or Lydia Lunch, or Pat Place. There were just so many really interesting women. And in England, you had like Gay Advert and the Slits, and you know the bass player from um, the Killjoys who ended up in girls' school. There were just so many interesting women doing really interesting music and art. That was something I was also trying to impart. You could be black. You could be Mexican like the Zeros or, or Alice Bag. It just didn't matter. What really mattered is what you had to say and what you had to play and what yep. you had to, to share you know, with your zeal. And I was zealous. Every inch of my notebooks had my favorite artists written on them and sayings right. that I'd copied. My <laughs> my art teacher who egged me on, um, Mr. Delman, he allowed me to come in and listen to records on my study hall periods. And one day he saw me reading Shakespeare and listening to "Beat on the Brat," and he said, "Isn't that a contradiction?" <laughs> <laughs> and i said no they it's not they're both tremendously gifted uh, lyrical artists i told him and he just laughed he had me come to the school the my school has moved but he had me come five years ago and address his current music class that he has it's like an after-school club and that meant something to me yeah he was a good guy mr Dalman. he's still teaching there so good on him but uh that, that is the advice. I mean, it's especially important when you're a young person. But yeah. I, I've discovered there's plenty of people who still haven't got it in their 50s and 60s. They spend all their time worried about whether they're going to be approved by uh, a peer set that isn't going to approve of them for being themselves and for yeah. being their best selves. Uh, you've never seen me drink, but when I drink, I get super silly and happy yeah. and laugh twice as loud. And tell twice as many stories and four times more jokes. I must be really kind of insufferable if you're s- sober. But um that's the person that I actually am. And yeah. it, it it took Dave Stein and Jeff Hutchinson's and Janet Whitehouse and Dave Hutchinson's and Richard Wigton's assistants, but they they let me see it earlier than I might have later. Yeah. And all those people who played all those gigs, you know, watching Johnny Thunders have his fingers go up the frets, you know, doing a lead. Just knocked me for such a loop that I was glad. I was glad to find out that this really was my passion. The childhood Beatle fan in me who would listen to a song like, um, think for yourself having been too young to know it was a George Harrison song, let alone that the Paul McCartney was playing a fuzzed up bass, Right, but even at the age of five, cause, uh, Um, rubber soul was my first album that i owned with my it was a a christmas gift
2: oh great great one Uh,
1: even at that age i knew there was something about that song that made it different from the rest of the kind of folk rocky tracks on that album and it just floored me even at the age of four and you know even as they put out their later more involved records i kept coming back to that song and in a way punk rock was a reconnection to that Beatles song that I liked things that were loud and wild and crazy. I yes. liked little Richard, you know, going, Woo! you know, and <laughs> singing, singing long, tall Sally and tutti Fruity and Lucille, you know, and I liked Larry, Larry Williams, you know, singing bad boy. Now, junior behave yourself. You know, <laughs> there's a streak of wildness in me that doesn't come naturally. Yeah. I'm not a weirdo by, by trade. I'm not an unusual person. I'm pretty damn conventional. But I know weird stuff that's smart and funny and friendly and and exciting. And I, I, I gravitated to it like a moth to flame. So that's my advice. Find what you're passionate about. And yeah. if people say they don't like it, say, well, I'm really passionate about it. And you know what? You really ought to try it. I've got this great thing, and if you gave it five minutes of your time, unfortunately, a lot of that gets proselytized, like religion. You yeah. know, people people find their Jesus or their or their Allah or whoever, and they want to spread the good word. And I kind of understand that, even though I I'm not interested in that particular right. message.
2: Right.
1: But for things that are universal, like music, or art, or culture, or even like. Give you a great example. I read this interview in Playboy once with Cindy Crawford, and uh, she was like the valedictorian of her high school. It turned out she was like super smart. Yeah. She, they asked her if she was discounted. She said like she got like a chemistry exam a day after everybody else because she was sick and she got like a 99 and the teacher just assumed she'd cheated and gotten the answers, <laughs> so made her take it over with a fresh set, set of questions, like a pop quiz. And she got a 99 again.
2: <laughs> Anyways, in the interview,
1: she was talking about how she met this like accountant at a party. She got introduced to this accountant guy. And she goes, oh, this is going to be boring, right? And she talked to this guy for like an hour and a half because he was so interesting. Yeah he he made the accounting profession sound interesting to her and he plugged it into wider you know issues of life yeah and i thought yeah we can all do that we can we can have a passion and if we are passionate if we see what's interesting about it in more general terms then we can we can get other people to see what we see in it and find things more tailored to themselves that they'll see in that too and my advice Led me to a moment in Santa Barbara, California, in about 1996, when I was out there visiting my parents. My dad, who hated punk rock, who didn't like rock and roll of any kind, and thought I was wasting my life, you know, having gotten mm-hmm. an economics degree at NYU, I was going to be a businessman or something. Um, I, I he said, I'm going downtown Santa Barbara. You want to come with me? It's just you know, a short five-minute car ride. I said, sure. Actually, uh, I was kind of hoping to stop by Barnes & Noble because I haven't seen my new issue yet. It just came out and it's been yeah. shipping and I haven't seen it because I've been out here. And he goes, well, yeah, there's a really great little newsstand outside. We can go there because I go there to buy magazines as well. And I went there and there it was, right? In the front of the newsstand. And I bought it because I wanted to look it over. You know, It was only five sure. bucks. And and my dad looked, gave me this look. It was the only time it ever happened in my life. He's just like, okay, I understand. Yeah. This is wow. what your this is what your passion has broken you. You have a much smaller business than the one I had. My dad had 20 employees. But you have a business. You pr- create a product that goes 3,000 miles away from your home, and you can buy it in my town. And other people buy it, and they get something out of it, I guess, because you're printing up 20,000 copies, yeah. as, at least back then I was. Right. And it felt good you know even my parents my disapproving parents yeah. who weren't, who didn't to to their credit didn't stop me you know i said this is who you are then this is who you're going to have to be even though we think you're wasting your potential you know they saw that i'd done something right something they did not understand still don't understand my mother but she does you know tell all her friends that her son is a magazine publisher so you know okay that's what passion can bring you, and I've had a more interesting life than I'd if I had done it their way, which was yeah. to stay at my job I was at for three and a half years at New York Life Insurance, which is where I went to pay off my student loan. I could have done that. I could have been just a you know an insurance uh, per functionary in an office wearing a three piece suit like I did those three years, but that wasn't ever going to be me, right? And I've, I've benefited from that. And I think other people can benefit from that advice. Is if you can any way, shape, and form, if not make your living, then at least guide your life towards where your passions really are. You're going to be a lot more excited person. And you're going to meet other people who share your excitement. And you're going to have much deeper friendships with them because you'll find you'll bond on other things too. Right. And here we are talking. Why would we be talking, <laughs> Greg, if, if not for this shared passion?
2: Well, uh, Jack, I'll have a drink with you anytime. (laughs) And I'll have a drink with you anytime. (laughs) I I just, I have to tell you, I have to say thank you. I have to say thank you because you were the first person that reviewed my, something I put out in print. Wow. You were the first person that that gave me a review of something I had done. It was my first record and I played all the instruments and you were so, there was something so genuinely complimentary about it that I. Well, I just called the truth. Well, I appreciate that. But I, I, I I just, over the years, I have realized you've, you've, you've probably there's thousands and thousands of bands that would probably say the same thing to you, which is thank you for doing this. And thank you for following your passion and and setting an example, because I think now, especially with what's going on, we need this more than ever. We need people to Uh follow their passion and, and, and support each other in art.
1: Well, that's very profound, Greg. And, uh, if you find yourself across the bay, there's a little <laughs> there's a little Thai restaurant right on Columbus.
2: Hold on, I'm getting my pen again.
1: I'm not giving it to you because it's such a tremendous great restaurant. It's a perfectly good one.
2: All right, I'm ready.
1: Um, but that is where I have bought Vail V Vail, the mm-hmm. producer of Search and Destroy and Research Books, a dinner on at least five of those occasions because he likes it. All right. And there's no plaque. There's right. no marking. It doesn't say Jack Rabbit paid back <laughs> <laughs> at, you know, 50 bucks a pop. Uh, v. Vale and Marion and a couple of other associated friends of mine would come along and, sure. and join us. Uh, my great friends, Jerry and Lisa, we'd always go together and Eric Moffat. But I can't tell you how good that felt. I mean, would I would I be the Avengers fan I am now without Veil? Would I have known, you know, uh, the, the Dills songs they hadn't recorded and some yeah. of the lyrics if it wasn't for Veil? Would I even rate, you know, William S. Burroughs or, or J.G. Ballard the way I do if I hadn't read his magazines? No, I would not. There's always somebody giving to you, and we all are just part of that continuum. I never yeah. met Steinbeck. He was dead pretty when I was pretty young. Yeah. Not even my favorite writer, but some of those books are amazing. And that that two page in the middle of East East of Eden just what a great thing he gave me. Thank you, John yeah. Steinbeck. Thank you, Neil Young, for that performance last week. Don't even have to go back to dead people. Yeah. I was genuinely moved by that. It was such I watched it like ten times already. Isn't that
2: nice? Yeah, I'm gonna have to check that out because I haven't. This,
1: the Colorado snow, you know, falling on him when he hit his acoustic guitar. It sounds great, too.
2: I will say the first time I went to Salinas when I moved out here, I already knew what it was going to look like because of John Steinbeck.
1: Yeah. It's like
2: Canary Row. Yep.
1: <laughs> Sixty, yeah, seven years Row. later, right?
2: Yep. It's crazy. yeah.
1: That's yes. what a good writer can do. It's unfortunate, yep. too, because I went to Sheffield, and they were all laughing at me because I thought – you know, I was going to get into one of these like uh <laughs> D.H. Lawrence deals. Sure. Like where where are the where are the mines? <laughs> right. And you're like, they're like you're a bit late for that, mate. You know. <laughs> I know. I keep saying I want to go to
2: Liverpool. I'm like, I got to go to Liverpool, and my wife's like, Do you really think it's going to be anything? Like, is it going to be this? Well, it will be for
1: you if you know your Beatles. Right. Because a, a number of those establishments are still there. Uh. Like the, the Jacaranda is still there and it still has John Lennon's murals on it. Yeah. I saw it as recently as when Caroline was in her mom's tummy. So that would have been 2010, I think. There you go. No, 2011 was the last time I was in Liverpool. And I brought Jim on the Beatles bus tour And uh, all the little Japanese tourists were taking pictures of him because he was not only (laughs) singing along to the Beatles tracks that they played, you know, at the age of three and a half, but he was singing along to the Eddie Cochran tracks they played and some of the other things that play into the Beatles history that they play on that tour bus. And if you stand, you know, at Men Dips and if you stand at Paul McCartney's old house, you know, you can just about feel them sitting in that parlor. You know, yeah. side by side, working on a tune, they have no idea is going to be heard by a billion people. Yeah, you know, and there's Paul McCartney's dad walking by, and they're they're playing "She's She Loves You" for him. You know, having no one ever heard it except for Paul's dad at that particular moment, so he's the third person to hear the damn song, wow. and he's like, uh, "Yeah, but shouldn't it be like yes, yes, yes instead of yeah, yeah, yeah?" <laughs> And you know, like that standing there, even outside the house looking in the window, that would mean something to you. Yeah.
0: Liverpool I'll itself I'll
1: it. is Liverpool itself is actually a little more hard scrabble than at least 10 years ago. I, I shouldn't speak. Uh, Ten years ago is a little more hard scrabble than Manchester had become and um, London had become. You can sort of still see what, what it must have been like to be on Matthew Street either in 1960 at the cavern or in nineteen seventy nine yeah. going to see the bunnymen and teared up, explodes and wah, you know. But yeah. um history moves on without us, right? Yep. You Just go you bit. go to the, the hard scrabble streets of the tenderloin even now and they're not what they were.
2: Right. Well a few are <laughs> <laughs> a few left. <laughs> There's few, a <laughs> no. few
1: stubborn ones hanging on to the old style. Yeah.
2: Well, Jack, thank you so much. I so so appreciate you saying yes to this podcast. And oh, gosh, I hope I
1: answered your questions. Oh, as well it was great. As I could.
2: It was wonderful. I know. And I know. I-,
1: I drop a lot of names and tell a lot of stories, but I like that in the interviews that I do too.
2: That's uh, that's why that's why I wanted to talk to you. So thank you. very Thanks, much, Greg. Sir. When do we have? Uh,
1: Let's let's uh yeah, you, know, you are coming back here when all this blows over, right? Of
2: course. I was there, I'm I'm actually writing a musical right now, believe it or not. And uh, I was there to try to actually go see some musicals right before this all went down. Like they I landed on Wednesday and they closed Broadway on Friday. And I was like, they'll never close Broadway. And sure enough they did. So I will be <laughs> back and I will put maybe we can put some Dizzy's time on our calendar or something. I'll have the eggs. <laughs> All right, brother. Thank you so much. No, thank
1: you, Greg. It's nice that you would take your own time to do this, and I hope people who listen to your podcast enjoy it.
2: Thanks, man. Thank you. Stay stay healthy. You too. Jackrabbit, a champion, a hero, a mentor, silent mentor, one of those mentors you didn't really think about being a mentor, but uh, they're all around you. Learn from them and uh, embrace them. Take the knowledge, pass the knowledge forward. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Anchor FM, all the places. And uh, www.limitedmileage.com. If you're into music, check out Greg Hoy and the Boys, my rock and roll band. We've got a new song coming out, new video. There's always something. Stay healthy, stay clean. Limited
0: mileage!